Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and with this episode we move into the early stages of the Third Crusade, which as we discussed in the last episode is probably the best known and most popular bit of crusading history. Why? Well really because it contains the legendary conflict between Saladin, the great Islamic ruler, and Richard the Lionheart, King of England. And it's also the basis of the Robin Hood legend, which is the subject of so many Hollywood movies. I think my favourite is Kevin Costner's Prince of Thieves, which is now actually a pretty old film and I regret to say shows my age. But we're some way from Richard the Lionheart's epic battles at the moment. Just to recap, in the last episode we heard about the shock in the West at the news of Saladin's victory at Hattin in 1187 and his recapture of Jerusalem in the same year. Now the great monarchs of Western Europe all decided to stop fighting each other and go on crusade to recover Jerusalem and the first mover was actually Frederick Barbarossa, the German emperor. We haven't heard much about the Germans in the Crusades, since the first Crusaders and the Crusader states were really all French and Norman. The Emperor Frederick was very aware of this and wanted to stamp some German authority on the Crusades. Why was Frederick an emperor, while all the other monarchs were kings and queens, apart of course from the Byzantine Emperor? Well, the answer is that he'd been given the title of Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope, which was originally created by the Frankish Emperor Charlemagne nearly 400 years before in 800 when he attempted to claim a Roman inheritance in the West in opposition to the Byzantine emperor, who was, of course, the real descendant of the Roman Empire. Now, this title didn't really mean much, but Frederick was already king of Germany, although Germany at this time was actually intensely feudal and divided into as many as 1,600 different little states, which didn't pay too much attention to whoever said they were king or emperor. But Frederick had been pretty good at asserting his authority, and he was now ready to go on crusade with a large army. Why was he called Barbarossa? This was because he had a red beard, and the Italian for red beard is Barbarossa. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. Early in May 1189, the Emperor Frederick set out from Ratisbon. He was accompanied by his second son, Frederick of Swabia, and many of his greatest vassals. And his army, the largest single force ever yet to leave on a crusade, was well-armed and well-disciplined. King Bela of Hungary gave him a friendly welcome and every facility in his passage through Hungary. On the 23rd of June, he crossed the Danube at Belgrade and entered Byzantine territory. There, misunderstandings began. The Byzantine Emperor Isaac Angelus was not the man to deal with a situation that needed tact, patience and courage. He was a clever but weak-willed courtier who had reached the throne by accident and who was always conscious that he had many potential rivals in his dominions. He was suspicious of all his officials but did not dare to control them strictly. Neither the armed forces of his empire nor its finances had recovered from the strain imposed by the vain glorious reign of the Emperor Manuel Comnenus. 
the attempt of the Emperor Andronicus to reform the administration hadn't survived his downfall, it was now more corrupt than ever before. High and unfair taxation was causing trouble in the Balkans, Cyprus was in revolt, Cilicia was lost to the Armenians, the Turks were encroaching on the imperial provinces in central and southwestern Anatolia, and the Normans had launched a great attack on Epirus and Macedonia. The defeat of the Normans was the only military triumph of Isaac Angelus's reign. For the rest, he depended upon diplomacy. He made a close alliance with Saladin to the horror of the Franks in the east. His motive was not to damage their interests, but to curb the power of the Seljuks. But his incidental achievement in having the holy places at Jerusalem returned to the care of the Greek Orthodox Church was particularly shocking to the Crusaders. To improve his hold over the Balkans, he made friends with King Bela of Hungary, whose young daughter Margaret he married in 1185. But the extraordinary taxation raised on the occasion of the marriage was the spark that set off the smouldering Serbs and Bulgarians into open rebellion. In spite of a few successes at first, his generals were unable to crush the rebels. When Frederick appeared at Belgrade, there was already an independent Serbian state formed in the hills in the northwest of the peninsula. And although Byzantine forces still held the fortresses along the main road to Constantinople, Bulgarian marauders were masters of the countryside. Hardly had the German army crossed the Danube before there was trouble. Brigands, Serbian and Bulgarian attacked stragglers, and the country folk were frightened and unfriendly. The Germans at once accused the Byzantines of instigating this hostility, refusing to realise that the Emperor Isaac was powerless to stop it. Frederick wisely sought the friendship of the rebel chieftains. Stephen Nemanja, Prince of Serbia, came with his brother Strasimir to Nish to greet the German monarch as he passed through the town in July, and the Vlach brother. Ivan, Assen and Peter, leaders of the Bulgarian revolt, sent him messages promising him assistance. News of these negotiations caused not unnatural concern at the Byzantine court in Constantinople. Isaac was already suspicious of Frederick's intentions. His former ambassadors to the German court, John Ducas and Constantine Cantacuzenos, had been sent to greet Frederick on his entry into Byzantine territory, and to the horror of their old friend, the historian Nicetas Coniates, they took advantage of their mission to incite Frederick against Isaac, who soon learnt of their intrigues. While Frederick's mistrust of Byzantium, which dated from his experiences during the Second Crusade, was being fanned by the schemes of his Byzantine escort, Isaac's good sense deserted him. Hitherto, the discipline of the German army and the adequate arrangements of the Byzantine authorities for its support Supply had prevented unpleasant incidents, but when Frederick occupied Philippopolis and from there sent envoys to Constantinople to arrange for the passage of his troops into Asia, the Emperor Isaac threw them into prison, meaning to hold them as hostages for Frederick's good behaviour. But he entirely misjudged Frederick, who at once sent his son, Frederick of Swabia, to take a town in Thrace as a counter-hostage, and wrote home to his son Henry to collect a fleet to use it against Byzantium and to secure the Pope's blessing for a crusade against the Byzantines. 
Unless the Straits of the Bosphorus were held by the Crusaders, he said the crusading movement would never succeed. Faced with the prospect of the German army to be joined by a Western fleet attacking Constantinople itself, the Emperor Isaac prevaricated for some months and at last capitulated and released the German ambassadors. Peace was patched up at Adrianople. Isaac gave Frederick hostages and promised to provide ships if he would cross the Bosphorus and to victual him on his passage through Anatolia. Frederick's wish was to proceed to Palestine. He controlled his anger and accepted the terms. The German army had meanwhile marched very slowly through the Balkans and the Emperor Frederick was too cautious to attempt to cross over to Anatolia in winter time. He spent the winter months at Adrianople while the citizens of Constantinople trembled lest he should refuse the Emperor Isaac's apologies and march on their city. Eventually, in March 1190, his whole expedition moved down to Gallipoli on the Dardanelles and with the help of Byzantine transports crossed into Asia to the relief of the Byzantines. On leaving the Asiatic shore of the Dardanelles, the Emperor Frederick roughly kept the road taken by Alexander the Great 15 centuries before, crossing over the river Granicus and the flooded River Angelomotes until he struck a paved Byzantine high road between Militopolis and the modern Balakasia. He followed this road through Calamus to Philadelphia, where the inhabitants were friendly at first, but attempted to rob the rearguard of the army and were punished. He reached Ladysia on the 27th of April, 30 days after his crossing of the Dardanelles. From there, he struck inland along the road, that the previous Byzantine Emperor Manuel had taken on his fatal march to the Battle of Meriokephalum. And on the 3rd of May, after a skirmish with the Turks, he passed the site of the battlefield where the bones of the victims could still be seen. He was now in territory controlled by the Seljuk Sultan. It was clear that Kilij Arslan, who was the Seljuk Sultan, in spite of his promises, did not intend to let the Crusaders pass peacefully through his lands. But awed by the size of the German army, all he did was to pick off stragglers and stop them searching for food. These were effective tactics. Hunger and thirst, as well as Turkish arrows, began to cause German casualties. Making his way round the end of the Sultan Dag Mountains onto the old road from Philomelium eastward, the Emperor Frederick reached Konya on the 17th of May. The Sultan Kilijarslan and his court had retired before, and after a sharp battle with the Sultan's son Kutadin, he was able next day to fall an entry into the town. He did not remain long within the walls, but let his army rest for a while in the garden of Meram in its southern suburbs. Six days later, he moved on to Karaman, where he arrived on the 30th, and thence he led the army over the passes of the Taurus without opposition towards the south coast at Seleucia. The port was now held by the Armenians 
who hastened to send a message to Saladin. The road for the Germans lay through difficult country, food was short and the summer heat was intense. On the 10th of June, the great German host descended into the plain of Seleucia and prepared to cross the river Calicodanus to enter the city. The Emperor Frederick rode ahead with his bodyguard and came down to the waterside, What happened then is uncertain. Either he leapt from his horse to refresh himself in the cool stream and the current was stronger than he thought, or his aged body couldn't stand the sudden shock of the cold water, or else his horse slipped and threw him into the water and the weight of his armour sank him. By the time that the army reached the river, his corpse had been rescued and was lying on the bank. The death of the great emperor Frederick was a bitter blow, not only to his own followers, but to the whole crusader world. The news of his coming at the head of a great army had enormously heartened the knights fighting on the Syrian coast. His force alone seemed sufficient to drive back the Muslims, and his combination with the armies of the kings of France and England, who were known to be setting out soon for the east, would surely recover the Holy Land for Christendom. Saladin himself was afraid that the combination might be too much for him when he heard that Frederick was on the road to Constantinople. He sent his secretary and future biographer, Baha Adin, to Baghdad to warn the Caliph Nasr that the faithful must gather to meet the threat and he summoned all his vassals to join him. He collected information about every stage of the German army's march and wrongly believed that Kilij Arslan was secretly helping the invaders. When they suddenly learned of Frederick's death, it seemed to the Muslims that God had wrought a miracle for Islam. The army that Saladin had gathered to hold the Germans in northern Syria could safely be reduced and detachments sent to join his forces on the coast of Palestine. The danger had genuinely been great for Islam, and Saladin was right to see his salvation in the emperor's death. Though a number of German soldiers had perished and some equipment been lost in the arduous march across Anatolia, the emperor's army was still formidable, but the German troops lost their nerve after Frederick's death. The Duke of Swabia took over the command, but though he was gallant enough, he lacked his father's personality. Some of the German princes decided to return home with their followers. Others took ship from Seleucia or Tarsus for Tyre. The Duke, with the army, much reduced, marched on through the damp summer heat of the Cilician Plain, carrying with him the emperor's body preserved in vinegar. After some hesitation, the Armenian prince Leo paid a deferential visit to the German camp, but the German leaders couldn't make adequate arrangements for the feeding of their army. Bereft of the emperor's control, the troops lost their discipline. Many were hungry, many were sick, and all were unruly. The duke himself fell seriously ill and had to linger in Cilicia. His army went on with without him to be attacked with heavy losses as it passed through the Syrian gates. It was a sorry rabble that arrived on the 21st of June at Antioch. Prince Bermond of Antioch gave the Germans a hospitable welcome it was their undoing. Leaderless, they'd lost their enthusiasm and after the hardships of their journey, they were unwilling to abandon the luxuries of Antioch, nor did the excesses in which they indulged improve their health. Frederick of Swabia, pleased with the homage paid him by Beaumont and encouraged by a visit that his cousin Conrad Montferrat made him from Tyre, was eager to continue the journey. But when he left Antioch at the end of August, it was with an army that was still further reduced, nor was his effort 
not appreciated by many of the crusaders whom he had come to help. All Conrad's opponents, knowing Frederick to be his cousin and friend, whispered that Saladin had paid Conrad 60,000 peasants to take him away from Antioch, where he would have been more useful to the Christian cause. With apposite symbolism, the old emperor Frederick's body had disintegrated, the vinegar had been ineffective, and the decaying remains were hastily buried in the cathedral of Antioch. But some bones were removed from the corpse and travelled on with the army in the vain hope that at least a portion of Frederick Barbarossa should await the judgment day at Jerusalem. Let us now return to Saladin, for in the moment of his triumph, he had made one grave mistake when he let himself be daunted by the fortifications of Tyre. Had he marched on Tyre immediately after his capture of Acre in July 1187, it would have been his. But he thought that its surrender had been arranged and delayed for a few days. When he arrived before Tyre, Conrad of Montferrat was there already and refused to surrender. Saladin wasn't a equipped at that moment to undertake a systematic siege of the town and moved on to easier conquests. It was not until after the fall of Jerusalem in October that he made a second attack on Tyre with a large army and all his siege machines. But the walls across the narrow isthmus had been strengthened now by Conrad, who devoted the money that he'd brought with him from Constantinople to improve all the defences. After his engines proved ineffective and his fleet was destroyed in a battle at the harbour entrance, Saladin lifted the siege once more and disbanded most of his troops. Before he came again to complete the conquest of the coast, help had arrived from overseas. The forces dispatched by William II of Sicily in the late spring of 1188 were not large, but they consisted of a well-armed fleet under the Admiral Margaritas and 200 trained knights. The presence of these reinforcements caused Saladin to raise the siege of Crac des Chevaliers in July 1188 and deterred him from attacking Tripoli. He would have been glad now to negotiate a peace. There was a knight from Spain who had arrived at Tyre in time to share in its defence. His name is unknown, but from the armour that he wore, men called him the Green Knight. His valour and prowess greatly impressed Saladin, who interviewed him near to Tripoli in the summer of 1188, hoping to persuade him to arrange for a truce and himself take service with the Saracens. But the Green Knight answered that the Franks would consider nothing less than the restoration of their country, especially as help was coming from the West. Let Saladin evacuate Palestine, then he would find the Crusaders the most loyal of allies. Though peace was not to be had, Saladin showed his friendly intentions by releasing some of his eminent prisoners. It had been his practice to induce the captive Frankish lords to obtain their liberty by ordering the surrender of their castles to him. It was a cheap an easy way of obtaining the fortresses. His chivalry went further when, for example, Stephanie, Lady of Outre-Jourdain, failed to persuade her garrisons at Kerak and Montreal to give themselves up in order that her son, Humphrey of Turon, might be released, Saladin returned him to her, even before the obstinate castles were taken by storm. The price of King Guy's release was to have been Ascalon, but the citizens there, ashamed of their king's selfishness, refused to honour his undertaking. Ascalon had had now fallen and so Queen Sibylla wrote again and again to Saladin begging him to give her back her husband. In July 1188, Saladin 
granted her request after solemnly swearing that he would go back across the sea and never again take arms against the Muslims. King Guy, with ten distinguished followers, including the constable Amalric, was sent to join the Queen at Tripoli. At the same time, the aged Marquis of Montferrat was allowed to go to his son at Tyre. Saladin's generosity alarmed his compatriots. Not only did he allow the Frankish citizens in every town that surrendered to him to go and join their fellows at Tyre or Tripoli, but he further swelled the garrisons of these last Christian fortresses by setting free so many of the captive lords. But Saladin knew what he was doing. The party quarrels that had rent the latter years of the Kingdom of Jerusalem had been healed by the tact of Balian of Ibelin only a few weeks before the Battle of Hattin, and they had broken out again on the very eve of the battle. The disaster embittered them. The Lusignan and Courtenay families blamed it on Raymond of Tripoli, and Raymond's friends, the Ibelins and Garniers, and most of the local nobility, blamed it with better reason on King Guy's weakness and the influence of the Templars and Reynald of Châtillon. Raymond and Reynald were dead now, but the bitterness persisted. Cooped up behind the walls of Tyre, the dispossessed nobles had little else to do but to hurl recriminations against each other. Balian and his friends, who had eluded captivity, now accepted Conrad of Montferrat as their leader. They had seen that it was he alone who had saved Tyre, but Guy's supporters emerging from prison after the worst of the crisis was over, merely saw him as an interloper, a potential rival to their king. Guy's release, so far from strengthening the crusaders, brought these quarrels to a head. With Frederick Barbarossa dead and the crusaders quarrelling in Tyre, there seemed little hope left for them. But history has a curious way of creating the unexpected, and the next stage in the story of the Third Crusade would take everyone by surprise. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on this podcast. And actually, I'd like to ask a special favour, which is I'd be super grateful if you left a review on Apple Podcasts. That's because I'm trying to get more awareness about this podcast on Apple Podcasts, since it's such a big podcast distributor. And any review that you leave will be a really massive help for that. So if you feel like leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, I'd be super, super grateful. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear more about how the Siege of Acre would become the rallying point for the Third Crusade. (laughs) 